Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Trevor Bullen. Now, Trevor is an architect based in Minneapolis, and he is the Dean of Design at Dunwoody College of Technology. One of the things that's fascinating about Dunwoody College is that they're an inter- interdisciplinary approach. So they came off a trade school base, and this means that it's very hands-on, and the way that things are structured, they're looking across what comes from each discipline in the creative sphere and how they all interact. So Trevor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Really happy to be here. Yeah, it's been awesome having a little chat to you before I've before we started to record. I've found out so many interesting things and we've had a conversation we could have easily recorded anyway. Because yeah. <laughs> there's so many little learnings and understanding. We've probably have all the best stuff already. Yeah, yeah exactly. We'll forget it all. I'm sorry yeah. for the listeners who have to just go through the motions now. <laughs> no, we've got plenty to talk about. So, Trevor, I want to ask you the first question, which is why architecture? Clearly a creative guy. And also, I want to get to why teaching. But somewhere in your early years or at some point, you bumped into, you had a design brain and you bumped into architecture. It could have been photography. It could have been clothes design. It could have been any other thing. And yet you headed down the architectural track. Um, was there a family member? Was there, a, what was the influence that kicked you off? Sure. I'm one of those kids who was always making things as a, as a kid, right? And I was always uh, impacting my space. I was always moving stuff around in my room. Oh, you're putting parents. In a different way and putting my bed in a different place. And it's just reorienting myself and sleeping in a different way. And so that was, I've always been this sort of person who was tinkering, playing and making. And I think I do actually have an uncle who's an architect, but to be honest, he was my uncle. And so I 
no disrespect to him. He, he he's since passed Wait, away. But oh, I was going to say, is he going to listen? <laughs> yeah. No, but he 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 was my uncle, so I didn't find him particularly interesting. Cause I just mm-hmm. thought of him as being like my parents, not interesting at all. And so, as I was getting ready to go to college, we had we had a career day, and we had doctors and lawyers and all these different folks come. And to be honest, the architect who came in and spoke to our class was the only one who seemed excited about his own about his work. About his wow. job, I felt like the, the the doctor was pretty dry. I felt like the, the sort of the business people were pretty dry. And at that time, I was one of those kids who was just a little bit different. I loved my two favorite subjects were physics and art. And I was, and most of my friends fell into either side, but I was one of the only folks who straddled both. And I thought, I, I think I'm going to give this architecture thing a try. And so I tried it, and probably into my some way into my first year. At college, I was like, yeah, you know what? I think this is it. Yeah, that's awesome. And interesting, obviously, physics and art, because architecture has such a discipline in analytics yeah. and numbers. And then the idea is that you get, you put the art, that, or you create the art at the start and then try and make it work, or you put that back into it at the next point. What I love about physics is the cause and effect, right? If this, then that. And there's something like that in, in architecture where you are, it doesn't always work, of course, but we are always trying to impact the way, pe- the way in which people feel or how they, how they react to what you create. Yeah. So we're always trying to w- work that into our solutions. And I think to me, that's the thing that, that, that connects those two, two disciplines. Yeah. I think the point that when you said that was there's a word in there, feel. And what we're in design, you're responding to a need. How you respond to the need is going to determine how the person who is the next one who touches it is going to feel about it. And I always think of take a pair of scissors and make the handle poorly shaped. And everybody gets a feeling about the misfunction of it. They, that usually with a pair of scissors, you're trying to do something that's got a level of exactness to it. And if it doesn't work beautifully in your hand, it's a journey. Think of yeah, all the left-handed people. And, it, and then you'll have a favorite pair of scissors. A hundred percent. It's yeah because you it, it the weight, yeah, the way it cuts, the, yeah. all of the all of these sort of intangibles around it are very real and, and have that impact on, on the individual and it feels a certain way yeah <laughs> so yeah i do i find that and the feeling of it is like you said you have a favorite pair of scissors and often i think like in design everything that humans create is in an evolution and everything that nature creates is in an evolution as well. But it knew the rules that it was creating them from. And we're just guessing at the rules. We're still learning them. And we're nowhere near close to what nature has already worked out. And we don't even have the ability to be at the level of complexity of what nature's already worked out. It takes this the same tree and grows it differently in different climates. And so this whole thing and, and and you take a seed that's this little thing and I always think of Wayne Dyer he says you you take an apple seed and it apples it grows an apple tree we don't we don't have that kind of thing worked out yet there's science around it that we understand it better but yeah we don't have it worked out anywhere near nature does and so we're on this massive evolutionary journey but it all comes back to how it makes the person feel and, and we're, we're tempting with moisture and wind and, and these, yeah. these environmental factors. We are also trying, I think, as designers often, and particularly in architecture, to respond to place, right? Like, yes. And, like, how do you even define space, place, right? And it's one of those things that I know it when I feel it, but, you know, I, I know it when there's an absence of it. But we're, we're also responding to all these different elements and then trying to uh, come up with a solution that that solves all the problems that, that come with those environmental factors. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. I have this little thing that I like to say. I don't generally say it to clients, but I do say it to our team, is 
there's three factors that are going to inform what we're going to do when we're going to design a new build home. And um, the first one is the environment it sits in. So the client's the last one on the list. <laughs> and yet they're the first one on the list at the same time. But there's the environment it's going to sit within and how do we respond to that because we've got a responsibility to that. And then there's going to be the regulations that are overlaid by the county or whatever it is that we're going to have to respond to. And finally, we're going to respond to the client because those things are going to inform so much of what we're going to attempt to do. And then the client's going to be the piece that's going to be about how does it feel. But if we put the uh, dream home essentially in the wrong place on the land, facing the wrong way, and we get the flow inside it perfectly for what they imagine they're going to do, it's still going to be a crap house. Yeah. <laughs> like, because it's in the wrong space or place. And like you said, and how do we respond to it? And how does it make us feel as intrinsically linked? And when it's well responded to, we don't, we're not aware. It feels exactly. right. It I had a conversation right. with Larry Speck from Austin the other week, and he was saying about Austin as a city, how it's just a, spa a city that feels quite incredible. And he said, yeah, it was all designed. And I'm like, what? And he said, man, that lake was made. There are so many parts of where the Capitol building sits, the way it was laid out. This was master planned. And he said, yeah. they got it right and nobody went, nobody ran off the rails. And that's why it does feel like a great, it's not a big city, but it's why it feels so good as a city. It's, yeah. it's, it's somewhat it's so prescribed. But you also mentioned sort of the relationship of the client. One of the things that, that I, I always feel like is that we in, in my old office, we used to say, good client, good project, right? Yes. Because if you are not in sync, if you're not dialoguing, if you're not responding to your client, if your client's not responding to you in kind, and there isn't this sort of mutual respect, it doesn't matter what kind of brilliant design mind you have, mm -hmm. right? It's similar to that response to context. You're not going to get it right. Yeah. Nobody's going to nobody's going to be happy. And I think not enough designers put that emphasis on really making sure that they connect with their clients and so, have that rapport. Of course, the, the magical question there is, as dean of design, how do you teach that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that that one's not in the syllabus uh, explicitly, at least. One of the things that we do at Dunwoody is we do spend an awful lot of time with real clients. Like a lot of universities will will have this hypothetical project, hypothetical client. Mm -hmm. We uh, we have a, a couple of our studios where we have what we call partner clients. In our graphic design, we have we do this process where. We invite people from around the campus to bring an object to school and our graphic design students build packaging around it. Yeah. And sometimes it's a, it's a family memento or it's a, it's a something that they got on holiday, but they work one-on-one -on -one with somebody as they develop that process. In architecture, in our fifth year, we have a, a couple of, usually it's a community group uh -huh. say, that's looking for ideas for a real project. Mm -hmm. So they come to us with a brief and really we, our students sit there, they're, they're part of the ideation process. We're not trying to replicate what an architect would do. Our students are helping these, these groups understand what their possibilities are. And so we work with these partner clients and our students develop real proposals, not proposals that clients are going to end up using in the sense of building something, but helps that client flush out, oh, we could do this, we could do that, we could expand this way we could expand that way uh, we could consolidate we could right and so that's and then so but those are real relationships and we have those students actually manage those relationships which i think is key to this we have them email the client and say hey and we have them the clients come into class and help with the review so we have this sort of dialogue going on i think that's the closest that we can i think that sort of touches on what we were talking about earlier which is this idea that we do spend a fair amount of time in the real world Yes, and, and a lot of time in theory. I yeah, and the real world teaches you real world situations in real time, as opposed to in theory, 
you want the theory as well because it teaches you the mistakes of the past. We never want to forget what history can give us. We have moved from that point in history to a new point. So we want the lesson, but we want to approach it with new eyes at this point so that we de-risk the it from our previous lessons. So we, it's this beautiful mix that I think that study can bring. It's so fascinating when I talk to different architects and around the world and that because of their age and because of the time that they studied, they all studied, not all studied, They a lot of them studied very similar people with very similar outcomes and very similar thinking. And those people studied very similar people with very similar outcomes and thinking. And this interdisciplinary approach that you have, whilst it, you're still doing that, it breaks that model. It says, what is there in graphic design that there needs to be in architecture? Or what is there in, say, you were saying about, um, before, about your graphic design started out from a basically a printing press mentality. So now we're in mechanics and stuff. We're in, whereas now that's all done in light and air and a bit of electricity, but you're actually in physical mechanics and what were the limitations of that and what do we learn from that and what do we need to hold on to that we learned from that in process? Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating. It's And, and th- what you describe is actually a lot of what my education was is very theoretical. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you another great example that we have, which is that we have a furniture design class. Oh, okay, wow. So a bunch of designers, they design furniture. But guess what? We also have a manufacturing group. And so there's a joint exercise they do with the manufacturing students calculate the loads yeah, on right. the piece of furniture. Like where are the weak points? Where's all the load going to be? Especially and so, good in a litigious society when you design yes, a chair. Exactly. <laughs> and then we'll often sometimes have some welding students who will help out the design students be like, hey, you know, the metal goes this way and we can weld this point. And we've had these great interactions where Students get to leave their design bubble and for a minute go, oh, wait a minute. People who have to make it, they actually, they have value too and they can bring something to my design. They can show me some things. And so we've really had some really wonderful results yep. in some of those some of those exercises. And, and that's the other thing about Dunwoody, so we're a super small school, right? We're only 1,400 students, so it's like a high school. But we're able yeah, to wow. do that because we're so small. We don't have any of these big sort of departmental silos. And so we can just walk across, go down to the welding shop and just be like, hey, what do you think of this? Um, and so that's part of the magic that happens here. I think that is beyond magical. You're a community that 1400 is not a huge community. It is possible to pretty much know everybody's name. It's certainly possible to have some very familiar group relationships and when you've got the whole welding workshop going, what's this idiot done now? Don't they get it? Come down here and and learn what it takes to do this and why your design can't, or there's, why it won't work with what we know. And then yeah. you get the education. We designed a board table for a company here in Australia and it had to seat 24 people. So it's a big board table. And the brief was, is that they wanted it to be a circle. And 24 people in a circle is actually quite a big space. And it was going upstairs in a building that had a lift, no crane access. And I'm like, okay. And I designed this thing that we call satin. They call, they actually call it the donut. And it's, I I can't do the conversion in my head but it's 1,200 millimetres wide at any, every point, and it's six metres across, so three sixes, 18 feet roughly wow. across. So it's 18 feet round, and then it is, what is that? What's 1,200? It's got to be about four feet wide. So it's a big round circle, and I wanted to make it look like it was levitating in the room. And so I put it on eight legs that are like thin spider's legs. This is all very easy to do in a sketch. And then we had to build it for them. 
And it was going, we had to A, make it so it could get into the building and B, build it for them. And I wanted a seamless surface on the top. And we looked at timbers, we looked at pouring something like maybe pouring it in concrete or doing something like this. Could we pour it in a resin? And we came up with using a product, DuPont product called Corian. And that meant that we could weld it so that it would become one seamless piece. And then the legs, we've got these very thin spidery legs, which I wanted to be gold. And this was, there's a whole lot of uh, clues around why, because it was for a, a business and the gold was part of the whole thing. And the levitation was to be doing something that was beyond what you would normally consider. There was all these clues in how we were doing it. And I also wanted you not to be able to put your feet on the legs. So that way you could sit anywhere in this space. Yeah. And that meant that the legs had to cantilever the table out, which there's a whole lot of physics, as you well know, to make this <laughs> thing, as you said, if this, then what? So we knew we were going to pin the legs to the floor. Then how do you get it to flop to the right level so it stays flat? And... It was a real journey of some computer modeling. So we drew it by hand. I drew it by hand to start with and worked out all the dimensions by hand. And then there was some computer modeling and not a lot. Then we tested it. We physically built a prototype leg. And the thing with anything of scale doesn't always scale incrementally. Things don't scale incrementally when they get to certain loads and stuff. So we built a leg and then we tested the leg with big presses and stuff and made sure the leg was stable then we actually got it modeled completely in solid works and then the loads and everything modeled against it and we found out that my thing was is it had to be able to carry it's a table but it had to be able to carry 30 plus people dancing on it <laughs> because what happens if that happens yeah and so we built it to be able to carry the weight of a hundred people dancing on it. And like the thing was, I'm going, what happens if they set up a rhythm? They're all stamping their feet. We can shake a stadium by doing that. Yeah. This table's not going to survive that. And will it end up in the floor below? Where, where will it, what will happen? And if it did collapse, what will happen to the people on it? Will they be trapped under it? What would happen? So it was it's this thing of being able to go to a welding workshop and go to a steel workshop. What kind of steel, what grade of steel would we be using? What thicknesses would we be using? And we wanted to be able to run power up the legs and all kinds of things that just add to the complications of doing it. And you'd never get to do that unless you went from each discipline to each discipline and understood the problems that they were going to have with what you and were. And the value that all the different disciplines bring. I think that we as most, a lot of designers, I'm going to say, have a problem where we we elevate the star designer as though they design in a vacuum, a light bulb <laughs> goes off, and their genius is in That's me. <laughs> and I think the more we, we deconstruct that myth um, and really impart the, uh, the, the collaborative aspect of yeah. our work, it makes everybody better, makes us better designers. And the more we can understand all the different factors that, that go into our it, projects. And it it certainly good. elevates everybody that everybody that's in the process. It elevates their ability to think and it requires their creativeness and it requires their ingenuity. And in doing that, everybody's growing, but it takes rapport to be able to keep that because there's going to be some roadblocks it takes rapport and respect to be able to keep that momentum. And it takes a patron of a client that trusts you and believes in you beyond what you even know you've got that you're capable of. That's the other part. And, and you've got to trust you, yourself. I, I put a lot of value in those relationships, right? Certainly, again, when I was more active in practice, really trying to work with contractors that I had a rapport with, a relationship with, who understood my aesthetic or knew when to stop and ask me the question as opposed to just going ahead and doing something and then having the surprise and trying. Yeah. And so those relationships are so key yeah. to execution, right? Because there's the design and then there's the execution of the design. 
And so much often gets lost in translation, right? So much. And I think of like what you're doing with your school there. And then I think of some of the other schools where, and Tom Kundig said this to me, he was chatting to him and he said, there's a whole nother genre of architecture that exists now where it is to do modeling that are for games and for virtual worlds. And the rules of previous architecture where it actually had to be constructed out of um, real things. Now it's constructed out of zeros and ones in a digital world and everything becomes possible at this point. And they're training architects to work in a digital space, but not in a physical space now. And I go, yeah. there's the, the there's the contrast between you're training people to physically work in this physical space and, and it will arrive here. And then we've got a whole discipline that's um, engaging us in an entertainment space, um, which is, and I, it blows my mind again. It's neither one's wrong or right. I'm firmly rooted in the one that you're in. Yeah. <laughs> and a fair way from the other one, other than when I'm sitting in a movie theater or watching something or being like AI developing something, this kind of thing. But there's something also really fascinating about what you just described. So about, I think it was two, no, that was last summer. I was invited to be on a, a juror on Exhibitor Magazine's, they have a design awards. Uh-huh. And Exhibitor Magazine, not so much to plug them. A lot of their, it's mostly for trade shows, like folks who design really beautiful booths for trade shows. Like right. really some some of them are multi-million dollar, yeah. like elaborate for luxury goods and other things. But because of COVID and the fact that most trade shows had shut down, they carved out a digital, they had a digital design award because a lot of these manufacturers decided to do these virtual booths that in, in the physical. And the company that won the, the, the prize was a company that recognized that the digital rules are different than the physical rules. So a lot of the companies, you would go into their virtual booth and you'd click, and it looked like a, it looked like a, just, it looked like a, we're so a, familiar, a, 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 a virtual environment of this, of the physical thing. Whereas this one manufacturer just created this world where their product was all around you in any given sort of dimension, and space, and, like, and time, and... move between the their product groupings in like in totally novel ways. Right. Yeah. Wow. The, it was just such a beautifully executed thing that you felt completely immersed in their product, not like you were walking into the shop or into a, a booth, but you felt like you were in this universe of their product and and all of its different possible applications. And I just thought, wow, like that's where you're really pushing your understanding that the rule set's different and you're responding in time. And you've got to still respond with the laws of the universe to something. You know, there's certain laws of behavior that you're responding to. I, I used to train innovation at Airbus, so the aeroplane maker, and did it with all com- other companies as well. But I used to be like train them in systematic innovation. And with that, one of the things that we used to get people to recognize or, or construct to recognize is that innovation's just a, it's not creation. There's creation, that's a different thing. Innovation is a stepping forward from what we had and and pulling things together. And with that, it needs to be close enough to be recognized and far enough away to be exciting. So you've got to, you've still got to be able to journey people and otherwise fear overtakes them. And they won't take the first step because they'll feel embarrassed, stupid, lost, whatever. So you've got to be able to lead them in. And this is another wonderful thing. Like when you said, oh, they did the trade shows. I'm like, and you started to explain it. My mind was exploding into, oh, wow. Are you taking them into another reality? And as you said, the first one is I think of of VR and architecture and pretty much people arrive at the house, they open the door, they park outside, not in the garage, 
where they would always park <laughs> in the garage. They arrive at the door and they work, walk in and the fire's burning and this bottle of wine, I don't know, the, the same regular constructs the whole damn time. There's a view, there's a whatever, there's a kitchen. And we have the ability to play in so many different ways to actually unlock their emotional state to see where they would go if they weren't constrained by the basics. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I would love to see the one that won that in the Exhibitor magazine, just for that reason of going, how did they turn it so upside down that it became so incredible? Because yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link afterwards. Oh, that would be brilliant. That would be really cool. And good on Exhibitor magazine. Oh, it feels like I'm plugging them here. We're not plugging them. We yeah, don't get no, paid by Exhibit. Yeah, we don't get paid by Exhibitor magazine. But good on them for actually recognizing that all their clients still have a need and they still need to communicate with their clients. It's going to be hard to pick up fresh clients, but if you run it as a competition, at least you've got this ability for everybody to put their best work in and come you know, with the most exciting things. And that drives it forward for if they ever go back to, yeah. and I would say they will, they do go back to trade shows, but they've created another slot in the market. They've innovated another slot in the market, which takes the client and the customer forward into a space that they don't have to come to the trade show for, as well as they can come physically to the trade show. And, Absolutely. and that's a piece because of genius as it, well. And it's fundamentally, what's interesting, what was interesting to me was that it was fundamentally different than their website. So often on a website, you go through and there's a way of, of moving through a website and certain people go to the website. Yeah. The people who go to the website and who go to the trade show are usually different audience. So now they've created this virtual environment for the, for the usually the buyers, the professionals who go to the trade shows, right? And mm -hmm. so now they've created this, this sort of third way yeah. uh, to engage who their clients are. And I thought it was just really cool. And an amazing place to be able to test and measure things as well. Yeah. Because by the time you've built a booth and trucked it to wherever it's going and constructed it, and if it's a dog with fleas, it's a dog with fleas. You can't, and the, I've done some booths, myself with people help people with them and if you get something wrong in the flow of it or something like that it isn't so easy to move it around it's not so easy to innovate it it's yeah. like building a house if the door's in the wrong space the door's in the wrong space it's expensive exercise to move it and this is why in the discipline of design being able to foresee the future and get to it is I think the most incredible journey. I want to come to school there. I want to, <laughs> I want to come and yeah, come and play. It, like it sounds like so much fun and so purposeful in the fact that because it's firmly rooted in things I understand, it makes it sound exciting. Yeah. It uh um so tell me what's the school what's next? Where are they headed? What does it look like now? And how do you want to make it shape it in the next five years? You know, if I had my brothers, I think that we would continue to expand, and we're, we're, we're obviously ex we're always exploring uh, new programs. Uh, so that's certainly I'd like to be love to be able to pull in uh, some other other disciplines. I'll leave it there just because that's a discussion I've been having with the with board, my provost, and, <laughs> <laughs> my provost and, and some larger discussions. So but I do think, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so do you do in this, do you do fashion there as well? We don't. That, right. that, that could certainly be one of them. Yeah. Um, I have a background in fashion design. And one of the things that in my background in that, I was like recognized as a swimsuit designer, woman's swimsuit mm -hmm. designer. That was one of my niches. And I went from that to being in, I'm going to say performance clothing, so specialist clothing. So people like um, American Cup, America's Cup yachtsmen, round the yep. world yachtsmen, the New Zealand All Blacks, 
the Australian Wallabies, the so the rugby teams, the Rugby World Cups on currently. I worked in, with all these different teams around the world. I worked with Sir Edmund Hillary, the first person to climb Mount Everest on clothing. And so clothing for purpose. And in that I came across, a lot of people would know the fabric Gore-Tex. And Gore-Tex, uh, again, this is not a plug, Gore-Tex, you can send me the money if you want, but <laughs> I'll send you my account details. No, but Gore-Tex is an incredible fabric. And we often know it as a an outdoor fabric because it's a breathable outdoor coating or a coating, but it's actually used heavily in uh, the motor industry and in the medical industry because of the what the product's made of or how it's created. And But they make you be a licensed designer to actually use their product. And you cannot create a garment without it being tested to be waterproof. It's got to be waterproof. They will not accept a garment. They test it, not you. They test it. And it's got to be able to have the qualities of whatever the labeling is going to be on it. And so you're, you've got them, you've got to be licensed to do it. And then you've got them testing you each time you create something. And it has a couple of effects. One is that you look for what's already worked for others and, and mm-hmm. copy their ideas. And then the other is that it means that when you want to do something different, you have to innovate. And when I looked at that side of, clothing so I'd done a lot of fashion and stuff from jeans where to women's dresses to all kinds of things but when I got to that end of clothing what fascinated me was clothing that people had to rely on not to look pretty not to look handsome or whatever not to they had to rely on it for their survival and it had to perform in whatever arena they put it into and when I think of like architecture that's a similar thing We're- Absolutely. The performance that I'm personally interested in as well. What I love about what you just described with Gore-Tex is that some fabrics have very particular functions, right? Some need to be waterproof. Some need to be moisture wicking. Mm-hmm. Some need to have thermal properties, right? And it's very particular and tailored to the use, right? Yeah. You even see it in some winter coats or like skiing garments, right? Yeah. Where the shoulders have one type of insulation because it Is a, is a possibility of that getting wet, right? And so the down, yep. down would not be suitable. And so they, they mix and match for the purpose in its location. And it's hyper specific. And I, I love that because I do think that's analogous to, to architecture, right? Where you put things where they need to be, where they need to perform in the, in their particular function. A hundred percent. And then we're doing it all based on where, how humans want to behave and perform. So the human behavior part of it is critical to it. Uh, Yeah, one of the things with, if you went down the the clothing design thing, I go, don't miss out on doing the performance design because it's how do you make it look beautiful as well as it perform seamlessly? I, I always hand a lot of that back to Steve Jobs and actually Phil Knight Nike has always managed to play a game where they um, have innovated constantly and but strived for performance, but they haven't lost aesthetic along the way. And Steve Jobs, the same, like his drive for aesthetics, but with ultimate performance um, and human behavior so well mixed is something incredible, apart from the fact of the companies he built, but the genius of that part of it of driving for something that didn't exist, but then it had to be seamless, drives design forward. It makes us... I think so. I think there's been a ripple effect across industries where more and more product designers or builders are really recognizing that they've got to do both. Uh, I went to visit here in the Twin Cities, a manufacturer of... They... (laughs) Weird. You know, when you check out at the supermarket or at a retail uh-huh. store, it's, there's like a little screen pad. Once yep. you put in your credit card, yep. they manufacture the thing that holds it together. And you slip in a, you slip in a generic terminal. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Terminal. But they designed and, and manufactured this thing. And I remember visiting them because they, they were a potential architecture client. And they were like, yeah, we recognize that like, People want this thing to not just be this dumb armature 
that holds it in place. It needs to be a nice object in and of itself. It's worthy um, of and that. I remember thinking to myself, this is the ripple effect. Because yeah. 10 years ago, it would have been this thing that just clamped on, held <laughs> the bolted on. <laughs> and bolted on. And if it held up and it was strong enough, that was going to be it, right? And, yep. and they would have been on their way and they would have continued to sell tens of thousands of units as they, they already do. But they recognize it, that they needed to continue to compete in that arena and make and have that aesthetic because they were trying to sell to all kinds of stores, not just the right. supermarket. Yeah. yeah, they wanted to be in the Louis Vuitton store as well as in the exactly. in the Walgreens or whatever it is. Exactly. They, yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? I, I was thinking about when you were saying it, something that jumped into my mind. I was sitting on a ski lift um, in, in the States and I was talking to these two guys and they were so there were three of us on the lift and they manufactured bollards that automatically come up and down and do all these different things, these security bollards. And they were, I think a reasonable size manufacturer oh, and design company with it. And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm, I said to them, so what? It's just a big piece of metal. Like, and and it's got to be able to stop a tank or a truck or a whatever. And they're like, yeah, that's it. And it's got to often be automated and all the rest. And I'm thinking, going through my mind when I'm talking to them, is how much innovation could you apply to a product like that? You know, and I'm, I'm coming from a negative space with it. I was like, really, what? how would you innovate that? It's just more steel or more whatever. And And then I was sitting there. And they were telling me some different things about it. And they were quite excited by the different contracts and stuff that they had. And I was saying, oh, look, I was looking at doing a job for a company where we had to have some of that stuff. And Mm -hmm. uh, it had to be hidden. You couldn't know that it was there. It would only ever appear when when it was extremely needed. So only really under an attack of some kind that, that you would have this. And... I was thinking back to clothing design where often you don't know that the thing is capable of something, especially in the sportswear area. You don't know that it's actually capable of it until it actually delivers it in this moment when it has to. And how, like, here's me thinking, yeah, steel things that pop up and down and blah, 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 blah. And actually, what are the physics and the angles and how do you make them look elegant? How do you have them so that they're all the time and then they remain elegant they remain a part of the structure but you don't realize that they're part of the structure and how do you place make with that in an architectural sense or in a master planning sense that you've hidden these things within the landscape but they're highly functional so that part of design is always the uh, to me is the most exciting it's like how do you yeah it's funny that you should mention that there's a great project here in minneapolis just today we were talking about it with some of my students, is the federal courthouse. And after the uh-huh. Oklahoma City bombing, uh-huh. they commissioned Martha Schwartz, and I think I don't know if you know her work, works in that landscape. No, um, yeah, I'm going to look her up. Space. And she's got they have these beautiful teardropped earthen mounds that yeah, are right. placed on the public plaza, right? But they've got grass growing all over them, and they actually have these trees that grow out of the mounds. And but that was, they're actually bollards in, yep. inside that earthen mound. If a truck or whatever were coming at this federal courthouse, it would, they would be stopped by this thing. But nobody really, nobody it's just, understands it's a, them as that. It looks like public art. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to look that up because that's, that is exactly it. It's like, how do you protect how do you protect something and it's like elegantly done and it's, and people get to use it for another purpose? beyond the purpose it was actually designed for. I've got a question for you, which is, if you only had one last class that you could could present, (laughs) (laughs) and when I say that, you could write the syllabus for it, maybe. What would you choose to, what would you choose it to be that uh, you would pull together that would be uh, like a legacy piece that everybody would go, Oh, yeah, that's the bullen piece. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't expect you. There's no right answer to the question, obviously. But with such a, a knowledge of design it's, and across the, the disciplines, what would it be? 
I think for me personally, I think there's something, it would probably be around design and narrative or, or storytelling, right? And the power of the story and the design, right? And, and, and when those two things, when those two things align, they can be so powerful. We were talking about Steve Jobs earlier, but I think that was part of his genius, right? Was to develop that storyline, develop a product that perfectly aligns with that and yeah. use that as the, as the launching pad. And I think it's, to be honest, I think it's an, under, it's an undervalued skill. When you see people who do it really well, it's, it can be, it's really something to behold. I got to agree with you. When you see it done really well, it is, it's so seamless that it's hard to recognize often where one piece of the discipline starts and the other one stops. And yeah. it, it, yeah, it engages people. And I think there's a responsibility with design to engage people seamlessly in because something's going to be made, manufactured, created, whatever, it's going to happen. So then how do you engage people beautifully? And then that, again, increases their emotional joy. And whether it's in using the product or whether it's just in being living, I look at houses and living spaces, and if you think that, pretty much most architecture is either a living space or there's maybe three things really, isn't it? It's a living space, a working space, or an exhibition space, pulling people together, especially in the built structure. Then how do you bring ease and comfort and security and excitement, a level of joy and excitement to all of those spaces we we had a job just recently where we designed a meditation room for a small company 24 employees and they there was a meditation room to be designed that could hold more than one person at a time and how do you do this in the center of a building and what would you do with that that takes you transitions you from your work desk or your workspace once you go through the door into the meditation room and we put some artwork in there and we had some funky shaped sofas as well as we shaped the ceiling of the room and the walls we have fall, fell into the same shape. So you were going into more of a womb-like structure and just things like that that were really exciting to play with and create something that became a, a transition destination. When you get to do those things, it's like there's a narrative and a story that goes with it. There's no other way it could be or should be. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's the beauty of it. Because all design is a series of choices that we make. It doesn't have to be that way. No, it's but just... It's done well. It feels like you think your, your body embraces it as though there, is, there could be no other way or there should be no other way. Yeah, that this is the way. Yeah, like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that is it's a that's a really beautiful part of architecture and and of all design. Yeah. yeah, it it's this joy of finding a way that expresses it and takes an emotional journey. One of the things that I'm really fascinated by is we keep coming back to in our conversation around this the feel that something has and getting the journey of getting people to recognize what they're feeling when is and and what they want to feel from a space and how does design respond in a space or, or an object doesn't really matter what how they want to feel about it and what that if we can give it a a, a positive feeling how that empowers them to be greater at what they are or be more comfortable at who they are or whatever it is. How does it empower them? How does it nurture them and empower them? And I don't know that there's anybody who teaches anything like that. We don't teach it. And like I do it with my children, right? We They roll their eyes at me because when we go to a museum, I make them pick something uh -huh. and speak to what it is that they like about it. I love it. 
and what it is that they don't like about something. But we don't, I don't think we, I don't think we train our children or, or it's not to be, to, to focus on the details and to understand their emotional response that you have. Typically, that's something that people might start to learn when they go to university if they're studying design or, do you know what I mean? But I think mm-hmm. this is part of our everyday life. I think we should pay attention to the lighting in a space and how that impacts your mood. Yeah. I think about just like little things like in cities. One of my favorite things have always been like, I used to live in New York and you'd have a building that was under like renovation. And so there'd be scaffolding up down this, down the city block for months and months and months. And then one day you would go down that street and it was gone. And it completely changes the way you experience that. Not only that sidewalk, but the building across the street even looks different. Everything. And we need to teach ourselves and to teach how these things impact us so that we can get better at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And that is that story narrative kind of thing and being observant. Often people say to me, how do you learn about buildings or something I said I always say the same thing to them you take a sketch pad and you take a pencil and you go and you draw them and you draw the details of them and don't miss each piece of the detail because in each piece of the detail you're learning the construction and you're learning what had to happen to make it get down to micro and then also stay at macro stay big but expansive as well but you learn through that observation and then you learn through going, how, what could I take away and what should I add through what, seeing what others have done and then how do you make it more elegant or simpler or maybe more decorative? How do you add decorative to it? What do you do and how do you take a piece so you, you've got this kind of shapes and forms, then what would happen if you added plants to it? What would happen if you added water to it? What would happen if you added artificial lighting to it? What happens if you keep adding things to it? And how does it respond in those different scenarios? I went recently to Uluru, uh, which is the big rock in the middle of, it's otherwise known as Ayers Rock, in the middle of the Australian desert. I've been a couple of times. And... It's one of those, it's it's, it's an incredible, like absolutely incredible place to be. And there's a real feeling to the place. And with that, I was talking to people and I was looking at photographs and stuff of the part at different times. And when it doesn't rain out there very often, but when it rains, this rock completely changes. It's got waterfalls off it. It's got all these things. And it's my bucket list item to go back and see it when it's raining, like when it's got lots of rain on it so that you see this thing and how it doesn't change, how I will behave when it's got water. And sketching. And I had a conversation with some students recently about one of their projects. It was an addition to it. It was an addition to an existing building. And we talked about how that happens. And so I ended up taking some pictures when I was going through an airport of an old building that was a new building and how the two came together. Yeah. Because I said to them, once you observe that expansion joint and how they do it, you can't unsee it, right? Every time you walk into a space and the two things, yep. you'll be like, oh, that's where the old... And the new mate. Really yeah. Right? Like, but once you've observed it and you start to, to understand those things, you can't unsee it anymore. And that's what I, one of the things I love like, it's about design and, and architecture and space. Like the more you understand, like I'm constantly looking at things. I have this reservoir of, Im- of imagery and spatial conditions and just this catalog up here in the brain. And I just love adding to it. I'm with you. I'm very much of a similar mind. I love to find the things that seemingly don't matter, but they are really important and like you say, like in a structural element like that. So where does the old meet the new? And is it to be seamless or is it an art piece or is it a, how do you elevate it or how do you hide it? What happens with it and makes it really special? One of the things that I think that often is lost in the dimensions that when we design things is the sound. 
And yesterday I was driving across a bridge and it's an old bridge. It's the Story Bridge in Brisbane City in Queensland. And there was a real rhythm of over every expansion joint. And I was like, huh, we don't get that on new bridges. And so my whole mind was like, okay, so we don't get that expansion joint that's, and you can see it on this bridge. It's like a mechanical expansion joint every, I don't know, maybe five meters or something like that. And I was thinking about, as I was driving across it, it's got a rhythm and a beat. And could we play with that rhythm and beat and make it something like we'd use it in a TV jingle or in a a thing? We could make the tires of the cars play a song to the occupants inside by choosing what we did with a rhythm. And you'd be able to speed up or slow down, but you'd have an optimum speed. And we could be adding this auditory um, component to crossing a bridge. Yeah. And I go, that this was spinning through my head as I was driving across and I was going, huh, if I speed up a little, what does it do? If I slow down a little, what does it do? And so I was playing in the traffic as I was doing it. Um, if I have new tires or if, the, if my tires are well-worn. Or, yeah. yeah. If I didn't have a petrol engine, if I was in a in an electric car, how much different would it sound? And I keep saying this to people as well in the evolution of design if you imagine it's going to be probably 15 years or something like that, given that the current combustion engine is probably well on its way out, and uh, we're going to miss the fact that it makes us smile when we rev an engine, that, that's going to be something we will lose. But we're, our, our noise will be tyres, and the tyre companies surely at this moment are innovating for the most silent tyre. Because it's yeah. going to become the irritant that people hear, and from cars, and then there'll be the, there'll be a, a nostalgia for the like. <laughs> I think about TikTok, right? Like, yeah, like the ticking sound of a watch, uh-huh. which is a little bit of a thing about the past. But I think of the brilliance of the, of the Swiss watch manufacturers who said, "I know we have a more accurate Method. watch that can be yeah. built. We have a better mousetrap." What about the a little bit of nostalgia? 100%. What about this precision engineering around the way we used to do it? Yeah. That and then they elevated their, their product into a luxury good, which is absolutely. I, I love that, and I wear one of them because of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too. <laughs> I'm with them, right? But that also goes to the narrative. It right? does. It does. And I think this is really, yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting to explore that narrative and also the the history of and where we came from. And I, that, when you were saying to me, when we first started talking about the printing press and that you were a school of drafting and things like that to start with, there's gold in there. There's That's absolutely golden because it means that the past doesn't get lost along the way. And then we maintain the history and the lessons from the past that we don't have to relearn by making mistakes in the future. Mm. Trevor, one last question. You have a favorite space, I'm sure, in your home. What is it? What's your favorite space? Oh, wow. <laughs> I'll talk about my former home, right? I'm originally, I'm West Indian, I'm originally from the island of Grenada. Oh. What I love about Caribbean homes in general uh, is the veranda condition, which is this incredible indoor-outdoor living space. But in the Caribbean, it's also this incredible social space where you welcome people. That is where the, the social mixer happens. And I remember... After I first started studying architecture, I'd go back to the Caribbean and I would notice that we have these beautiful ocean views and yeah. the people would still position the veranda to face the street. Okay, because that's nice. where you welcome people. You, your neighbor walks by and it was completely counterintuitive to the way, say, in North America, but you would take a space like that and you would open it to the view, right? Uh-huh. It, it, it's all about... And I love veranda spaces in the Caribbean, and they're all over, in, in all kinds, 
in, in buildings big and small, in luxury homes and in little shacks. And that, that little in, indoor, outdoor, in my house, not in my house space, that's the thing that I love the most. Love that. I love that. If it had a single emotional word that you had to choose for it, what would you choose that emotion? Oh, man. I think it's, I think it'd be about connection, right? It really is what connects you to your larger community. And, that, and that's what I, I love about it. Cool. I love this. The question always is because it opens up a whole way of thinking. And it's a, a favorite. It's where you would go. And it's where you would, you go in your head if you can't be there physically. Yeah. And you chose the veranda space and and then it came back to community. And then I think like you're a teacher as such as well. And all this, it's all about giving. It's all about being connected and giving. And it's part of who you are as a person is to connect, to give, to inspire, to work with. And I think that's, it. it no wonder the veranda I just recently recorded a series for the AIA Austin, Texas, for their homes tour. And in it, uh, there's one particular house, which um, is going to be an open home in the next couple of weeks. And it is designed around for a couple. So it's a mid-century styled home. And it is um, in a particular street where I don't know that there's actually firm written rules, but you do not put a fence up. You do not put boundaries across the front. And in fact, you keep a veranda space and the street, the people who move into the street walk, they drop in, they say hello, they'll walk up and hop on your veranda with you. They'll drink coffee with you. And anyway, the couple who had this house designed for them, they had a, the the whole front facade of the house is, oriented around a slightly oversized um, veranda point so that they can sit in that veranda point and engage with their neighbors and the other people walking up and down the street. And a, a couple of times in Austin, I've been in neighborhoods where I've questioned, how come nobody has a wall? How come nobody's like behind gates? And uh, they've said, oh, well, this street is... It's known for this. And so if you don't like it, don't live here. Go. We'd be we'd love to see the back of you as you leave. This is what <laughs> you come to this neighborhood for is community and connection. And I just go, it's a, almost a lost, a lost art, a lost thing, because so many people live behind walls. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Trevor, awesome conversation. Yeah, fun talking with you. Yeah, really good fun. Obviously, post all your socials and all the bits and pieces on how to get hold of you. And I'm looking forward to coming to Dunwoody. I want to come and see and... We would love to have you anytime. Hang out and just see the whole thing in action and see that diversity of it. It would be, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll put it on my list of places to be for sure. Awesome. Clearly great meeting you. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure, man. Have a great day. Okay. Hi, guys. I'm Adrian. I'm your host of Talk Design Podcast. I started this podcast a couple of years ago, and in doing it, my aim was to talk to amazing design people, creative minds, people who I could learn from and hopefully you could learn from. This was a big part of my whole reasoning for starting the podcast. We've cracked over 80 episodes and we've done two homes tour specials for the AIA Austin in Texas, which have been really great fun, talking just specifically about houses. We've talked to HGTV stars. We've talked to building designers, interior designers, architects, business coaches, and some inspired characters along the way. People who have captured my imagination and their creative output and gone, huh, these people would bring a story to somebody else and maybe inspire them to go a little further with what they're doing as well. So I wanted to reach out and ask you all for some advice. 
because you are the guys who tune in and listen and subscribe. And I really appreciate that. So I want some advice from you. If you guys would be happy to share with me, A, what you like best, so that I can better direct what we cover as content. And then also, if there's things you want to solve, what are the three biggest things you would like information on? What are those kind of keys so that I can look and go, okay, let's find somebody who speaks specifically on these points and get some depth of information back to you that would be really useful in your business or in your life or in your home, whichever one it would be. So if I could ask you to do that, I would be forever grateful if you would share with me just through the email based on the Talk Design website, which is www.talkdesign.show. If you could just reach out via that email and say to me, hey, this would be a really great subject for me, for my business or for my family or for my home or for the way I want to see life. I would love to be able to support you guys and find those people that we could talk to that would bring that to you. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I so appreciate the fact that you listen to the podcast. It makes it all the more fun when I get messages from you to say, hey, this inspired me. I had somebody who sent me one the other day that said, your podcast, and we were talking on a certain subject, it was a game changer for me. It was a game changer in how I viewed how I was looking at what I was doing with my design and what was going to come from that. So these things make it all the more worthwhile. So please, if you could tell me top three things that would be useful to you, I would love to support you guys in delivering that. Thank you and thank you for being a listener. Take care, have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are, whatever it is. Cheers, Adrian, over and out.